All right, y'all. Um, to get to get started, uh, I'm just going to pray real quick, and we're going to jump right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to gather in your name, Lord, to worship you, uh, and also, Lord, to learn, uh, Lord, the history of your people. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, uh, as we as we experience this material, Lord, and the and the emotions that it that it that it incites, Lord, I pray that you would um, turn our gaze uh, both both both. Both inward to our own uh, to our to our own sin, but also outward, Lord, to your to your goodness, uh, Lord. I pray that uh, that in the that in the midst of this, Lord, we can uh, worship you and Lord seek to uh, repent of the ways that we that we don't love uh, love one another well, uh, Lord, and look to your Holy Spirit to teach us, Lord, how to love one another well, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, Amen. So good morning, y'all. Um, for those of you who don't who don't know me, my name's my name's Malcolm Foley. I'm co-teaching this class with Slim. Uh, and so, before we formally kind of get started, I got a few words uh, of introduction to extend the kinds of things that Slim said last week. And so, this is kind of like a long list of disclaimers. And so, as Slim made clear last week, discussing discussing race in the in the American church can be a dicey endeavor, and it's one with many risks. But it's also an endeavor that can yield much fruit. And what, and what we've decided to do over the course of the next seven weeks now is to begin with a robust historical introduction, which is what I intend to offer over, over the course of the next three weeks. And then, in, and then in the last four weeks of the class, we're going to decide and discuss, okay, what do we do? Um, some of you are going to have those questions throughout the kinds of things I'm, I'm going to say today. Just slow your roll. It's coming. But there's a but there's a but there's a but there's a history that we need to know in order for the kinds of suggestions that Slim and I are going to offer in the last few weeks to make sense. Um, and so when people ask me kind of what do we do, what do we do, what do we do, I'm not going to answer that immediately, uh, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and we're going to need to be okay with that. Um, so the, so my next three weeks are going to have a little bit more subtle of an application. Uh, because my hope is that we as, we, as we take kind of a close look at this history, that we'll be able to more wisely assess what we think and what, and what we say as we look at what Christians, or Christians so-called, have thought and said on this topic. So all of this is to say, Slim spent last week reminding us why we should talk about these things. I don't need any convincing of that. And I'm going to move forward assuming that we're all on board with digging as deeply into these things as we can so that our love of one another can be as robust and full as it ought to be. All right. So, um, as you may have already gathered, these next few weeks are probably not going to be fun, and and I don't feel any obligation to cheer us up at the end of each class. We're going to pray, but this history is not it is not is not by and large a joyful history. It's a hi and it's not a history of victimhood. It's a history of struggle and resistance, as most of history is. The history that I'm going to be recounting is a roll call of some of the darkest and. Uh, with no exaggeration, some of the most demonic activities that have taken place in this country. One may ask why we're not spending significant time on the history of Latinos and Latinas in this country, or Asians of various stripes, or the slaughter of natives. Those are valid questions. Each of these groups, along with various European immigrants, especially in the early 20th century, have been treated like animals and second-class citizens, with the church often in support of that treatment. But there is a divide that dates back to even before the country's founding, and one that economically and politically built the nation in which we live, and that is the black-white divide. And so much of, much of what we discuss in this class is, is, is going to be applicable wide, widely, but we've chosen to focus in on this particular issue. Another statement. Um, race is a 
fabricated concept. The false heretical concept of blood or racial purity is about 600 years old. And because it was created, it's something that can be dismantled. Now, that does not mean that colorblindness is the goal. Because first of all, any kind of blindness is never the goal. The issue is not whether or not we see color, but how we treat color. And so we want to look at everything through the eyes of the gospel. And we want to, we want to truly be able to see so that we can act wisely. And so in order to do that, we need to know our history. So why start with history? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't my favorite subject when I was younger. Um, and Desiree tells me now that whenever I talk about history and dates, she immediately zones out. Uh, so, don't, so, don't, so don't do that to me this, uh, this morning. I'm, re I'm recounting this history because um, it's very difficult uh, for you. It, it, it's, you, can't, you, can't, you can't know the experience of being, of, being, of being black in America without living it and to, and, and to hear it, especially from the mouths of those, especially, especially in our past who lived that experience. Um, it's a necessary exercise. And a lot of our history has been a history of people finding ways to avoid understanding this particular experience. Um, that's, that's much of what the history of justifications of slavery and advocacy for segregation, that was kind of, that was kind of the point. You keep, you keep black people in a particular space that's close enough to, close enough to exert, basically to exert dominance over them, but not so close that you actually have to interact with them on a, on a daily basis to care about what's going on in their lives. And so black people were seen as commodities, goods to be kept around as symbols of white power, but as real human beings, mm. And so few weeks um, is going to just be kind of snippets of what it has been like to be of African descent, particularly in the United States. And so the hope is that at the end of this class, ignorance is no longer going to be an excuse, even though as, as we're going to find out, ignorance is, isn't even the main issue. And so the last uh, kind of disclaimer I want to offer is a matter of tone. Slim and I are different people. That's why we wanted to co-teach this class. It's because this is a topic that both of us think, think, think about deeply and, and feel a particular way very deeply. Um, and, and Desiree, the most constant voice in my ear besides the Lord, um, also says that I get a little bit intense when I talk about this stuff. Um, and the fear is that kind of I'll, I'll, I'll present myself as the, as the stereotypical angry, angry black man. Um, now, many of you know me and you know who I am generally. I am black, I am a man, and this is something that makes me angry. Um, it's, it's, an, it's intense material, I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest. Racism makes me angry. I, I, I spend a majority of my time now studying a period where thousands of people lose their lives in horrific ways because of it. And part of sanctification is a training of our emotions. And so as long as John 2.13 to 16 are in the Bible, I will see fashioning a whip of cords and overturning money changing tables as angry and righteous responses to injustice. We must learn to weep over the things that God weeps over and also to be incensed by the things that incur his wrath, which include our own sin, especially, uh, especially our lack of love for one another. So let's get started. I put on, I put on the, uh, I, put, I put kind of what we're going to talk about today, Racism 101 and Introduction to Slavery. So we're going to do a lot in like the next like 40 minutes. It's going to be, it's going to be great. So first question, what is racism? 
And so I'm focusing specifically on racist ideas. Now, some of you may ask, well, what about you know, individual versus institutional? We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna get there. I'm not gonna use that language, but we're gonna, we're, we're gonna talk about that concept. And so the definition that, that, I'm, that I'm using for racist ideas is one that I get from one of my favorite books. It's called Stamped from the Beginning. The subtitle is a really ambitious subtitle. It's The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Um, wonderful book. Very, very readable. It's like 500 pages, but it's very, very readable. I mean, it's difficult reading, as in just kind of, like it hurts to read it, but it's very, it's very, very readable. And, he and Ibram Kendi defines racist ideas as thus. And we're talking about, um, this, uh, this applies to any, to any, to any racial group, but, but, but black people are the example. And the definition he gives is this. A racist idea is any idea that suggests that black people or any group of black people are inferior in any way to another racial group. Very simple definition. This means that if you think that something is wrong with black people or wrong with black men or wrong with black women, that is an ascription to a racist idea. Because in, because in reality, there are dishonest black men and honest black men. There are dishonest white men and honest white men. There are gentle black women, mean black women. Gentle white women, mean, wh uh, mean white women. I could go on. But, race, but racist ideology is a, is, a, is a diverse phenomenon. It's not, just, it's not just the KKK. It's also the person who thinks that black people are more emotional than white people. It's the person who thinks that white people are more intellectual than black people. It's the person who thinks that, and this is, and this is, a, and this is an important one, who thinks that because African Americans are disproportionately represented in our prison population, they move right to the assumption black people are disproportionately criminal. We're going to talk a little bit more about that one later. It also means that the, it, it also points to the school teacher or school principal who doesn't expect or advocate for the success of his or her black students because they probably won't get it. This was this was the first kind. This was the kind. This was the first kind of racism that I um, that I personally experienced when I was uh, going into kindergarten. The church, the the school that I was going to, um, that I was going to go to uh, in the it basically a block away from my house. Um, when, when my parents met with their principal, um, they 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 got they got the idea from this conversation that there was the expectation that I wasn't going to do well. And at that point, they were like, "Malcolm's not going to go to this school." And but I but I know that there are, I know that there are a number of kids today who are who are in schools where those where those kinds of expectations um, are foisted on them, and that and and that and, and that doesn't set a good precedent for. Um, for their, for their trajectories. Beneath our skin color and different types of hair, no one can tell any differences between our bodies, brains, and blood. But people have been told for years that these differences exist and that they have meaning, and people have been lied to. And so if that's what a racist idea is, where do these things come from? Sin, yes. But we can actually trace these things. It's often the case that people think that racist ideas go this way that it starts with, with hate and ignorance, and then that leads to racist ideas, and then that becomes racist policies. This is option one. And so this is the kind of thought that leads to a certain understanding of solutions. And so these are, these are three of the main, the, like the, the main ways that people think are effective ways to fight racism. First one. 
is self-sacrifice. So self-sacrifice is this idea that people need to uh, people need to give up their own privileges in order uh, in order for the uh, for the betterment of black people or whatever or whatever ra racial group we're talking about. Now this idea of self-sacrifice is rooted in the idea that racism helps most white people, which is actually not true. And this is one of the often ignored ignored facts about about slavery. Before the Civil War, we have rich slaveholding rich slaveholding planters who had a bunch of slaves and drove and drove a lot of state of state policy. But there were many many more poor whites who, in order to kind of in, in many cases to make themselves feel better, got on board with policies that were advocated for by the rich because it allowed them to look at others in society and think, well, I may be poor, but at least I'm not a slave. The wiser option, however, for all of us is to recognize that opposing racist policies actually helps all of us. Actually, equal opportunity helps all of us. And deep down, this is something that we even know uh, from scripture. Loving our neighbor is not entirely opposed to loving ourselves. What, 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 what we're being called to is not a masochistic, just kind of the more you, the more you suffer, the, more, the, the, better, the, uh, the better others will do. The fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of these things are other-directed. And some of them deal with, deal, uh, deal with your own demeanor. It reminds us that the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't just empty us, but also fills us with the right, it fills us with the right stuff. And so also the way to fight this particular sin is not merely to be guilted into self-emptying, but to primarily focus on the building up of those around you, which may, yes, necessitate some sacrifice, but the Holy Spirit, uh, God, God, has, God has promised to fill us up. This is, this is why, I mean, one of my favorite scriptures is, um, is, is, is when Jesus tells us not to, not to be anxious about anything. Because like very few of us, I think, take that, take that seriously. Uh, don't be anxious about anything. Like that sounds really, really weird to us. And, and he says, if you, you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the things that we need will be added, added unto us. I'm, I, am, I am praying that, that each of us can take that seriously. Because one of the goals of this class is, is, is for us to learn how to, how to seek the kingdom of God um, and his righteousness. So that's the first one, self-sacrifice. The second one is uplift suasion or moral suasion. This is the idea that, um, that, that people will be persuaded away from their racist ideas if they see, particularly black people, improving their behavior, uplifting themselves from their low station in American society. Now this has, this has a few issues. One, um, it practically doesn't work because what ends up happening is you have individuals, and this, and you can see this uh, in the history of people like Booker T. Washington or W.B. Du Bois or Frederick Douglass or others, where people will see those individuals and think, "Oh, you're one of the exceptional ones. You have found your, you've, you found some way to lift yourself above the masses of the rest of black people." And so what that doesn't that doesn't affect that doesn't affect the racist ideology at all. It gives a it actually in in many ways gives it gives 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 fodder for people to continue to think in that in that way. It's similar to what sociologists actually call the black friend phenomenon. Where people have if you have kind of one or two black friends who 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 agree with you, 
what ends up happening is you, you, end, you end up using that experience to justify how you, how, how you already think. Uplift suasion is one of the most, it's one of the most popular, it's one, it's one of the most popular ways to fight, to fight slavery. And it's a kind of language that you'll hear a lot. You know, if people just, you know, prove themselves to be human, then we'll treat them as human. Uh, we should realize how insane that sounds. The third, um, the third option that a lot of people will go with is educational persuasion. So this understanding that if people know the facts, uh, that they will act rightly. Unfortunately, um, Many of these are facts that people do know, but the question is whether or not we care. And so the, the relationship between belief and practice is never just kind of a straight, is never just kind of a straight line. There are always these kind of these, these, these apparatuses we have to, or we create to connect our belief and what we do. And so part of, the, so part of, so part of this work that we're gonna to try to do is to kind of reshape those apparatuses so that we can understand why we believe what we, or, 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 or what, we, what we believe and what we ought to do as a result. And so not only do each of these options have deep, deep fatal flaws, but they each boil down to a particular assumption about the way that racist ideas work. And it was that, and it was that paradigm that I said at the beginning. You have hate and ignorance, which leads to racist ideas, which then leads to racist policies. And that's why well, and, and, and that assumption is that, like I said, ignorant and hateful people have racist ideas, and then they do racist things. And this is one of the reasons why nobody wants to be seen as a racist or called a racist, especially since the 1940s when racist became an epithet. It's because there's this, there's this close link between adhering to racist, in our, in our minds, this close link between adhering to racist ideas and being ignorant and hateful. And the fact is, all of us are susceptible to these kinds of ideas. Every single one of us. I am, I still, still hold and have held a number of, a, a number of racist ideas. And so it, 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 requires, it, requ it requires us to be very careful about the way that we, the, the things that we think about and the things that we say. So in reality, the paradigm is the other way around. In reality, and we and we know this as especially as 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 re, as reformed Christians, we know that people act out of pride. People act out of self-interest, and in reality, this starts in people's self-interest, and it starts in these in these in these policies that that benefit me, and then when I recognize that these policies have particular racist effects, then I develop these racist ideas to justify these policies. I'll go. I'll, I'll go through an example in a, in a second. And then when I, when I continue to kind of speak these, talk about these ideas, then people get lazy and fall into these patterns of ignorance and hate. Example. Um, one example is, is American slavery. So American slavery doesn't start because you have just a bunch of racist Europeans that, who go to, to go to Africa and just start stealing people and creating the, the transatlantic slave trade. It starts because you have Portuguese explorers who go to Africa, don't understand, don't understand the customs, but see that, sl that slavery, as a, slavery just as a practice can get you a whole bunch of money. And so when, they, so when the transatlantic slave trade starts, they, they, they keep it going and they justify it to the king and to the pope 
because they just have to basically find find reasoning that allows us to continue that allows us to continue this practice that that helps us that helps us out a lot. Speaking of speaking of the Portuguese, and so uh, another example, and this is an example I gave in the, uh, the sermon a few weeks ago, but um, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. In in the 1850s, you have a group you have a group of members who go to the leadership and say, "We're really uncomfortable with taking the Lord's Supper with black members." About 30 years before, uh, people people had tried this before, and the and the and the synod said, "No, we we celebrate the Lord's Supper without distinction of color because that doesn't make any sense." Um, but in the 1850s, they reverse this decision and make an allowance for the weakness of some. And they institute different Lord's Supper services for black and white South African Christians. And so then in the, in the intervening years, you have theologians who basically, who, 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 who construct a theology that justifies that kind of, that practice. And then when apartheid becomes the law of the land in South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Church is one of its most avid supporters. It didn't start, it started with people who were uncomfortable and as opposed to the leadership telling them why are you why are you uncomfortable let's let's take let's take a look at this because this is contrary to the gospel the response was okay uh it would be much easier for us to just kind of make an allowance for this separation and then people found reasons okay this is why this separation ought to be and then it continues along those lines Slavery was a was a very similar story. You have this you have this 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 economic institution that comes to be uh, just kind of the fabric of the nation to the extent that people are like we can't do without it, regardless of how unjust it may be. We just can't we just can't do without it, and so it's biblical and so it's 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 socially beneficial. All of these kinds of things. And so the kind of history that we're tracing is one that looks much more like this than it does option than it does option one. All right, so let's get into yeah. So let's start let's start with where the where the history of the so-called African American experience begins. And so I'm going to date that to 1441. about 600 years ago. Ooh, I want that one. I think I want this one. Yeah. 1441. In 1441, Portuguese crusaders capture, capture some African slaves off of the coast of Mauritania, which is in uh, northwestern, um, northwestern Africa. And so they attacked West African villages shouting St. George and Santiago, or St. James, as they always did when attacking strongholds of Islam. So the captives that they took were enslaved as prisoners of war, which was a widely accepted practice not only in the 15th century, but in the centuries before. As a matter of fact, Christians and Muslims had been enslaving each other for centuries, but the Catholic Church had done a lot of, had done, had done a lot of work um, fighting for the idea that Christians can enslave other Christians. It's going to be important later. And so in 1502, another important date, 1502, the first, first African slaves are, are brought to the Western Hemisphere. And they're brought to what is now known as, well, what was called Hispaniola, which, which, which is now 
Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. In 1502, the Spanish bring slaves there. Later, the Portuguese get on board with this, the Dutch, the French, and the English. But that was not the beginning of the brutality. That began in Africa at the point of capture. And so that we can visually understand what's going on here, this is a, this is a picture of the, of the triangular trade. And so, we, oh, oh, nope, go back. Set up for that one. Um, so, so, so European traders would, 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 go to, would go to Africa and trade with coastal African peoples for gold, spices, and slaves, take those slaves to the Americas, where they would grow cotton, sugar, and tobacco, and other crops, which then they would take back, which then they would take back to Europe and trade, and just continue this, continue this cycle. Now, as a side note, uh, it is, we often think about slavery as, um, as a story of kind of the big bad European exploiting poor, Afri poor African tribes and just kind of crushing and pillaging them. Uh, that image is not entirely true. For example, when, when the Portuguese came, basically, basically started moving, uh, moving inland into Africa, they, 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 met with, uh, they, met, they met with an empire called the Congo Empire. This empire was much bigger and much older and much more powerful than the Portuguese Empire. And so, and, and, th and, they, and they actually ran into this a lot, where they, where they, where they ran into communities that were uh, just militarily superior. But the danger, um, but, the, but, the, but the issue came in when they, through this constant, through this constant trading of slaves, just basic, basically depleted, depleted those, uh, uh, those communities. And the kind of slavery that Europeans then brought to the Americas was actually a new kind of slavery. This whole, like the, the whole racial justification for slavery and things like that, that was a, that was a, that was a largely new thing. Because before the 16th century, Africans were one of many different enslaved groups. After all, our English word slave comes from one such people group, Eastern European Slavs, Slavic people. That's where we get, that's where we get, the, that's where we get the word slave from. Because in the, in, in, especially in the, in the 13th and 14th century, Muslims took Slavic people as, as servants. And in order to justify that, articulated a philosophy that asserted that Slavs were meant to be servants. And that's an impulse that goes back all the way back to ancient times. For example, one ancient author says this, humanity is divided into two, the masters and the slaves, or if one prefers it, the Greeks and the barbarians, those who have the right to command and those who are born to obey. The latter, those who are born to obey, those who are born to obey, are by nature incapable of reasoning and live a life of pure sensation, like, like certain tribes on the borders of the civilized world, or like people who are diseased through the onset of illnesses like epilepsy or madness. That is Aristotle in his politics. And because this has been a common human, human conception, we must never forget how radical the Christian gospel actually is in asserting the dignity of all peoples and the universal neighborness of humankind. But I digress. So when we get to the 16th century, we have, we have a slavery that has come to apply almost exclusively to Africans. And the transatlantic slave trade has begun, and its most lethal leg is the Middle Passage, which is the, it's, it's, that, it's that journey from Africa 
to the Americas. And so you know how when you go on a long car trip um, and you need to play Tetris to try to get all of the luggage into your van or small uh, four-door sedan? Well, that's what slave traders did, but with human beings. And so this is a picture, I don't know how much you can, I don't know, I don't know how much of this you can how much of this you can see, but this is a picture of the kind of the kind of organization of putting 292 human beings in the in the bottom of the in the bottom of a ship. Historians have estimated the kind of space that people had depending on gender and age. Because African slaves spent most of their day in this kind of situation and were only brought on deck for short periods of forced exercise. Research published in 1794 calculated that a man was given space of six feet by one foot four inches, right about 16 inches. A woman was given five feet by that same width. And girls had about four, four feet six inches and a foot across. The air was hot, stale, filled with the incessant smell of vomit, sweat, sickness, waste, and death. Because if someone, if someone, in, the middle, if someone in the middle of that section dies, there, it, it, may be, it may be a while before that body is removed, if ever. Water was restricted to 24 ounces a day, about two 12-ounce cans. Diet was rice and fava beans. Many did not survive this journey. And those who did had a lifetime of slavery to look forward to. This is the reality that Killmonger is talking about at the end of Black Panther. When he says, um, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who jumped from ships because they knew that death was better than bondage. This is the reality that he's talking about. Because death in this situation seemed, it, it seemed better to many than what, than, than what they were experiencing and what they would experience when they came to the Americas. Now, I also don't want to give the impression that slavery was the only experience of the African in America because some were able to purchase their freedom. Some were able to secure their freedom through fleeing. This is the story of many of the famous ex-slaves that we know, like Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and others. They were free because they fled. But freedom was no piece of cake either, especially after 1850, during the, after, after the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act. And so after that, after that law was passed, basically government officials would be paid extra money to return slaves to plantations. Now, it wasn't, there wasn't an entirely uh, consistent way of designating whether or not a black person was a slave or a free person. And so you may be seeing the loophole, the loophole here, which is that many free black people in the North and the South were actually resold into slavery because it was a lucrative, it was a lucrative thing to do. This is what the movie 12 Years a Slave is, it, it, is about. This is specifically the story of, 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 of Solomon Northrop where this, this was his story. As a free, as a free black man, he was, just sold, he was sold into slavery. Because as a result of the Fugitive Slave Act, it was, it, was, it, was, it was fair game. And so in the States, we, have, we, have an, we, have, we, we, we start to have an economy that revolves around slave labor. And this is a, and this is a national issue. This issue of, of racial caste is, was, a, was a national issue. Even after slavery ceased in the North, Northern corporations still made serious bank off of the slave economy of the South. 
making them just as guilty for making their livings off of a brutal system of torture, violence, and, and, familiar and familial destruction. And so I want to spend some time dealing with the actual justifications, um, the justifications of this kind of practice, starting with kind of just the various views of Africans that were, these were popular views in our, uh, in our country, especially in the 17th and 18th century. First is the view that black people are inferior and often savage, in need of the civilizing force of Christianity or Western civilization. In the words of the preeminent early American authority on black intellectual inferiority, he says this, the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. Um, this person is on the face of one of our coins. Can you guess who this person is? Yes, Thomas Jefferson. This is in his notes on the state of Virginia. Uh, you read that text, you will find a number of things, including that quote. And uh, there's a quote where he says that, uh, that black people are physical savants, which means that they don't need as much sleep as other people do but they're lazy, so they want to sleep more. Um, there are, there are countless, other, countless other examples of these things um, in Jefferson's uh, Notes on the State of Virginia. And even 50 years later, um, one, of, one of the more prominent um, abolitionists in the early 19th century, David, David, David Walker, who penned um, an appeal to the colored citizens of the world. This is a book that um, is very good to read. Um, but he notes that if you're looking, if you're looking at a if, if you're looking at a place to kind of to cut against someone who some someone who argues robustly for this idea that Africans are are intellectually inferior, particularly Thomas Jefferson is the place to go. Now, white abolitionists weren't 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 much better. For example, William Lloyd Garrison. So William Lloyd Garrison writes the preface to Frederick Douglass's. 1845 narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, a, a, a wonderful book that I would suggest that, that, that all of us read. But in this preface, Garrison says that enslavement had degraded black people in the scale of humanity. Nothing has been left undone to cripple their, to cripple their, their intellects, darken their minds, debase their moral nature, obliterate all traces of their relationship to mankind. For Garrison, you have two types of black people. You have those who are degraded by slavery and the exceptional ones who rise above, like Douglas. For Garrison, the African was someone capable of high attainments as an, as, as an intellectual and moral being, needing nothing but a comparatively small amount of cultivation to make him an ornament to society and a blessing to his race. Garrison and a number of other and a number of abolitionists bought into this racist understanding that enslavement can actually dehumanize a person, or that anything can actually dehumanize a person, because it is, it is not possible, it is not possible for you to take away someone's humanity. It is not possible. God, <laughs> God made you a human being, and nothing anyone can do to you can make you not a human being. They can treat you 
like you're not a human being. But that has no effect on whether or not you actually are. The it's, it, 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 it's the same thing with the, way, with the way that we treat human dignity. You can treat someone as though they do not have that dignity, but you cannot take that dignity from them. And so abolitionists, in many, in many cases, abolitionists are, 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 as are racist in a different way um, compared to pro-slavery um, apologists, which is a disturbing, it's a disturbing thing to know. And so uh, the most prominent justifications are both scriptural and social. And so probably the most prominent the, the most prominent scriptural justification is the so-called curse of Ham, which according to the text is not even a curse on Ham, it's a curse on Canaan. But the way that this, but the way that this kind of narrative develops is that it looks like this. This is, this is, this is articulated by a Muslim scholar in the, in the 14th century who knows about the fact that people are saying these things. And he says this, that the curse of Ham theory is that Negroes were the, were the children of Ham, the son of Noah, and that they were singled out to be black as the result of Noah's curse, which produced Ham's color and the slavery God inflicted upon his, upon his descendants. Now, this wasn't super popular in the 14th century because a number, there were a number of different slave communities, and it wasn't necessary to justify African slavery as opposed to all these other kinds of slavery. But in America, that situation changes. And so the Puritans, my favorite, oh, my favorite people. But... Not so much in this, in, this, in, in this regard, because they were especially adept at this kind of justification, creating this sharp distinction between spiritual salvation and bodily well-being. Richard Baxter, the famous, very well-known Puritan, saw slavery as a benevolent enterprise in a Christian directory, saying this, make it your chief end in buying and using slaves to win them to Christ and save their souls. Be sure to let their salvation be far more valued by you than their service. Now this sounds nice, kind of. But it reduces people to how useful these people are to you. It talks about, he says, make it your chief end in buying and using slaves to win them to Christ. So basically, I'm, I mean, he's saying, <laughs> never mind how these slaves, how the, how, how they experience you buying and selling them. Disregard that. Um, it's, it's like saying, as you, as you systematically oppress these people, win them, win them to Christ. There's a radical incongruity there. Especially because uh, for, men, for, for, for many slave owners, they saw it as against their best interests to evangelize their slaves. And so they didn't. As we talked about before, it was illegal for Christians to enslave other Christians. And so there was the, so there was the idea, if I actually do evangelize my slaves, then I may have to set them free. And so states like Maryland and Virginia passed laws that said, if you baptize your slaves, you don't have to set them free. Problem solved. And so ultimately people built an economy on slavery and then looked at the scriptures, found slavery, found Paul talking about it extensively, encouraging slaves to obey their masters, saw Jesus use masters and slaves as figures in his parables, looked around at what they were doing and thought, 
we've got this right. Never mind the fact that this was a system defended as exclusively applicable to Africans. Never mind the fact that it was necessarily built upon men and women stealing. Never mind the fact that countless families were torn apart as a result of this institution. Never mind the fact that legally, the institution saw human beings as non-human beings. All of this was pushed to the side under the auspices of particularly irresponsible readings of scripture. The other main justification was the social and cultural one. Leo Africanus, also translated Leo the African, said this about Africans, and people loved quoting him because they loved quoting him when they were accused of being unfair because they said, look, he's, he's African and he's saying this stuff. He said this, Africans lead a beastly kind of life, being utterly destitute of the use of reason, of dexterities of wit, and of all arts. They behaved themselves as if they had continually lived in a forest among wild beasts. Such a declaration had even more weight coming from an African author claiming to merely tell it like it is. Our conception of the possibilities of telling it like it is need to, need to change. The response to this ought to have been, actually, you can't say that about any group of human beings. That ought to have been the response as opposed to, yeah, sounds right. But these were widespread conclusions, not least, because not least because Europeans didn't understand African customs, nor did they, for the most part, put the work in to try to understand them. Now, it would seem uh, ridiculous to treat the sufferings of slavery as light. What you see in the bottom right-hand corner is, uh, is a picture of a slave named Peter. This picture circulated in a, in, in a number of uh, abolitionist texts. What you see along his back are raised keloid scars from the from the from the whippings that he that that he endured because of because of running away. I didn't show you the picture of a man whose back looks almost concave because his back had basically been beaten out of him. It would it would seem it would seem ridiculous to say that that was light in comparison to what would come later. But it's true, and this is what we're going to talk about actually next week. There are a number of African Americans who talk about the period between the period between emancipation and the civil rights movement. In various points on points on that on that timeline, there are people who are saying that the situation that black people are experiencing is worse than slavery. That's where we're going. During slavery, there was a it, it there there was the assumption that that. That, that slaves had, had economic value, which in some cases stopped slave owners from killing them, but not in all. In 1669, Virginia's legislature um, sanctioned the casual killing of slaves, forbidding the punishment of owners if, a, if their property should chance to die. So the idea is, you know, if your slave just happens to die as a result of punishment, um, the owner isn't to be held responsible for that. That was just, that was the law. Like you did, you don't. It, that's that the the owner can't be can't be can't can't be prosecuted for that kind of thing. And rules like this don't don't get made without circumstances to prompt them. And so these they 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 point to a broader assumption that many white people assumed that they could do whatever they saw fit to do with black bodies, and if those bodies rebelled, the worse for them. Raping, torturing, and separating their families was entirely on the on the table. And so after emancipation, these, even these rules change. And that's what we're going to get 
next week. 12 years of hope dashed by decades of domestic terror. So the light I will offer, next slide, is black Christian resistance. And so African, African slaves were not cowed into complete silence and subjection. Many resisted in a number of ways. Uh, whether it was refusing unjust treatment, running away, building subversive religious communities um, and networks, or in some cases, rebellion. The reason why Haiti, the reason, the reason why Haiti is free is because slaves is, is, is because slaves rebelled. Now, the reason why that didn't happen here is because in Haiti, slaves outnumbered slaves outnumbered white people ten to one. Here. Uh, it was an 80-20 split on the side on the side of white people, and so there, so there, so so there, so there, there, are, there are a number of reasons why what happened in Haiti didn't didn't happen here, but Haiti was free because of a mass slave rebellion. Now Haiti was poor because after after these slaves rebelled and won and won their land, France told them, "You need to pay us back." for the fact that you're not slaves anymore. And so because of that, they, they, had, they, they, they had this crippling debt that they, were, that they were responsible to France for. And so all of this, all, all of this, all of this has to, all of this has to color the way that we think and talk about these things. So people like Lemuel Haynes, Richard Allen, David Walker, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and many others wrote and preached to convince those around them that not merely that slavery was wrong, but also that racism was wrong, that black people were not inferior in any way, are not inferior in any way, and will never be inferior in any way. And such a fact is what undergirded the origin of predominantly black churches. Now, some people think that the, that the reason that predominantly black churches began and continue to exist is just that black people prefer to worship with black people and white people prefer to worship with white people. Richard Allen is in the upper, upper right-hand corner. And his situation was like the situation of many, um, of, many, of many black Christian slaves, which was that you were a member of a segregated church where black people were in the balcony and white people were on the ground floor. And there were a number of cases where black members came to leadership and said, um, our, our worship is being actively restricted. Can we go start another church? And the leadership would say, yeah, sure, start your own church. And I'll, you know, we'll designate somebody to kind of watch over you, to make sure you're not you know, starting any insurrections or anything. But yeah, we'll do that. Note, the response was not, wait a minute, you as a member of this body feel like your worship is being actively suppressed. Maybe we are doing something wrong. No, instead the answer was, oh, it's okay. You guys just go over there and do your own thing over there. And, and we'll, we'll send somebody to watch you, but besides that, we're fine. It's those kinds of it's it, 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 it's that kind of it's that kind of thinking that um, that continues that I think continues to separate us. It can it, it, it continues to separate us today, and and it's the fallout of those kinds of decisions that we're going to get into next week as we move forward in history, because that is our time. Now. Um, 
I have there there are a number of there are a number of books I have up front. There's a list of uh, not only books but also documentaries and things like that that can help us continue to get oriented to these to these kinds of topics because there's a lot there's a there's a lot here and there and and you're only really going to get a taste over the course of the next three weeks and I know that for some of you that taste is going to be a lot um, but uh, I think for us to kind of wisely think through a way forward especially as especially as a church um, especially as we seek to especially as we seek to love to love one another as as Christians for us to do that we, we we've got to do this kind of this kind of hard work so I appreciate you guys' attention um, if you have questions come up to me I'll, I'll I'll I'm gonna put my I'm gonna put my number on the board um, until all these other people start coming in because I can't give it to everybody but uh, um, email me or slim slim and I are are, are are available for this for this kind of thing but this is something that we want like I said we want to, we want to do this well and so thank you thank you for y'all's attention um, and we'll see y'all we'll see y'all next week